0: Well, our theme this morning is uh, the imitation of Christ and our text is Philippians 2. But I want to begin with an apocryphal story which, uh, in the context that I heard it, was associated with the production of a passion play that has been running for many years in Arkansas. And uh, lots of tourists come and they observe this passion play, and it runs over a number of days. And uh, the story concerns the actor who played the part of Jesus in this passion play. And as he carries the cross up the hill, one of the tourists that has come to observe this passion play gives the leading actor a very rough time and heckles him and shouts all sorts of insults at him and ridicules his acting ability and finally the actor he 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 took all that he could take he threw down the cross walked over to the tourist and punched him (laughs) returned to his cross picked it up recovered his role and carried on (laughs) and the director of the play after that day's performance went to the chap and said look uh, you know, this, this is absolutely unacceptable. I, I, I know this, this. this heckler was giving you a very rough time and he was very disruptive, but I cannot condone what you did. And besides, you're playing the part of Jesus and Jesus did not retaliate, so don't do anything like that ever again. So the man promised that he wouldn't. Next day, he was back in role again, had the cross, was walking up, and there was this heckler. Again, same guy, same stuff, same insults. And the same thing happened. The chap couldn't control his temper. He, he, he threw the cross down and he went to the guy. And th- there was trouble again and he punched him. Went back to his cross, finished the part. And at the end of the play, the director came to him and said, that's it, you're fired. I cannot have you in this production behaving in that way. And the actor pleaded with him and said, look, this part means everything to me. I I will hold it together no matter what. Please give me one more chance. I really need this job. So the director agreed, gave him a second, gave him a third chance, went back the next day, took the cross, walking up the road. He saw the guy, the heckler was back, same old stuff, same old insults, he He kept a grip on the cross. But the whole thing got the better of him. But he kept holding the cross and he went straight up to the heckler. And he looked at him straight in the eye and he said, I'll see you after the resurrection. (laughs) It's one thing to mimic Jesus. It's another thing to imitate Jesus. And it's the imitation of Christ that Paul is concerned about in this letter. And in all his letters, actually, Paul he doesn't use the words you find in the Gospels, disciple and discipleship. Instead, he he simply says, follow Jesus' example, pattern your life after his life, imitate the model of life exemplified by Jesus. Cut the cloth of your life according to the pattern of authentic living that you see given by Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it in verse 5 of our passage, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And this is the point of of chapter 2, particularly 6 to 11. The, The whole letter is built around this beautiful hymn or poem because it encapsulates the authentic pattern of jesus life these verses have been described as a radically missional text and so we're going to explore something of that radical nature uh, under three headings the first is imitate jesus by keeping his story at the center of our lives it's worth i think just remembering stepping back uh, and remembering the way in which this story of Jesus impacted the, impacted the people of Philippi to begin with. You don't have to turn to it, but the story is given in Acts 16. You get a background there to the beginnings of the church. Paul, Timothy, and Titus, uh, sorry, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they respond to a vision that Paul, Paul receives. He sees a man of Macedonia who pleads for Paul to come and share the gospel. And so uh, they go and they end up in this place in Philippi. And it, it's quite, well, it's quite amusing because it's, it's a vision of a man in Macedonia. But when Paul gets to Philippi, the whole thing is, is run by women. Or, or it's, the first convert is a woman called Lydia. And she has these other women who are praying by the river, even bef- before Paul gets to Philippi. So women play a significant role in this church, including its leadership. And Acts, it goes on to tell us about the people that were part of that church. There was a jailer, there was a slave woman, as well as Lydia, the businesswoman. Quite a diverse group of people whose lives have been changed because they've encountered the living Jesus. And so Paul's aim now in this letter is to encourage the Philippians to keep on making this story their story. To let it shape their community. And transform their relationships. Verse 5 again. In your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And that means paying attention to the whole of Jesus' life. There's a temptation in Christian circles to jump from the cradle to the cross. And to miss out or play down. Not pay enough attention to the content and shape of Jesus' life and ministry. All that's entailed in verse 7 in our passage, that Jesus took the very nature of a servant, a slave, during his earthly ministry, coming to serve, not to be served, Mark ten forty-five, washing the feet of disciples, And telling them, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In John 13. Or as John puts it in 1 John 2 verse 6. If anyone is in Christ, they must live as Jesus lived. That's a radical text, isn't it? If we say we are in Christ, we must live as Jesus lived. So if we don't pay attention to the breadth of Jesus' life we'll end up with a very abstract Jesus. And our everyday life and our service and our worship and our leadership in the church will become imbalanced and deficient. So as communities of Jesus, we are called to embody the story of Jesus in all its fullness. But perhaps, perhaps as individuals, some of us need to encounter Jesus afresh, I was recently struck by this testimony from the Sri Lankan writer Vinoth Ramachandra. I think he illustrates really well both the initial attraction of Jesus Christ, but also how the story of Jesus remains central and transformative and prophetic. He writes, I still remember the thrill of picking up the New Testament as a schoolboy and encountering the Jesus of the canonical Gospels. Here was a figure whom I had traditionally placed among the founders of religions, but who said and did things that subverted everything I had taken religion to be. I adored his blazing wit, his embrace of the poor, the immoral, and the marginalized of his society, his vigorous denunciation of religious hypocrisy, manipulation, and oppression, Priest and temple alike came in for withering judgment. The images he used to speak of God, a yearning father, a widow searching for a lost coin, a farmer nurturing his vineyard, a king throwing a banquet for the starving and the homeless, these struck deep chords in my heart. And what he called people to was not a new religion or a religious way of being, but a whole new way of life in union with himself that had to do with grace, truth, and justice. So it was, as a 17-year-old, that I surrendered my life to this Jesus. So began a lifelong struggle against evil, not least in my own heart. And I soon discovered that the secular prophets whom I had admired for their ruthless honesty may have been closer to God than most religious folk, including Christians, I knew. But But that they too could be submitted to a critique, that was more searching than anything an atheistic worldview could offer. The attraction of Jesus, the fullness of his life, how it should shape our lives. We must keep this story at the center of our lives, the center of our community life. Secondly, imitate Jesus by making his story seen and heard. This poem or hymn in Philippians 2, it tells the missio dei, the mission of God, the story of God, humanity, and the whole of creation. And this story, once heard and believed, must be shared with others in both word and deed, proclaimed and performed. And proclamation was happening from the Philippians. It's been suggested that chapter 2 verses 6 to 11, is the gospel the Philippians preached, the gospel for which they suffered and of which their lives must be worthily lived. There's a significant sentence found in chapter 1, verse 14, where we read, Most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. There are three Three things that are clear from that verse. First of all, it shows that ordinary, everyday believers have been speaking the word, sharing the gospel with family and friends and associates, and doing it with greater zeal, despite the imprisonment of Paul. Secondly, evangelization, therefore, is not just for apostles. It's not just for clergy. It's not just for professional missionaries. It's a normal activity for all people, all churches. And thirdly, the example of other Christians remaining faithful under pressure and in spite of persecution is meant to encourage the Philippians to remain faithful, even when circumstances are tough. I've just returned from South Korea where I was taking part in seminars on Peace and reconciliation, which was really quite timely. Uh, although I need, to, you know, I need to get real with people here. I, I didn't go to Korea to unite North and South Korea. <laughs> I wasn't on the phone to Donald or to your man up in Pyongyang. Uh, this was arranged many, many months ago. Uh, but those are themes that are really very precious to God's people in, 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 in that whole peninsula. And many of us there uh, in those meetings last week were very well aware that in North Korea, following Jesus is an extremely difficult and dangerous thing to be doing. But what struck me in South Korea was the confidence that people have in the gospel, that this gospel can transform individuals, uh, families, communities, whole nations, I think we've lost that confidence here in the West, here in the UK. But where where do you begin in a society that's sceptical and cynical about the truth claims and the role of Christianity in society? Well, there's no better place to start than the life of Jesus. In 1935... Howard Thurman was an African-American who was part of an American student delegation that went to, uh, as it was in those days, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. Thurman was grilled by a Hindu scholar whose questions I summarise. More than 300 years ago, your forefathers were taken from the western coast of Africa as slaves. The people who dealt in the slave trade were Christians. The men who bought the slaves were Christians. Christian ministers, quoting the Christian apostle Paul, gave the sanction of religion to the system of slavery. You've lived in a Christian nation in which you're segregated, lynched, and burned. Even in the church, I understand, there is segregation. I am a Hindu. I do not understand. Here you are in my country, standing deep within the Christian faith and tradition. I do not wish to seem rude to you, but, sir, I think you're a traitor to all the darker peoples of the earth." I am wondering what you, an intelligent man, can say in defense of your position. Strong words. Well, Howard Thurman took five hours to deliver his answer. (laughs) He started and finished with the example of Jesus Christ. I summarize. Jesus was a Jew whose Jewishness Christian interpreters forget only to their loss. He was also a poor Jew who, by his poverty, was thus linked to the great mass of men on the earth. Jesus was not just a poor Jew; he was also a member of, my, of a minority group in the midst of a larger, dominant, and controlling group—the imperialistic Romans. The historian Mark Noel writes that Thurman went on to say, "The basic fact is that Christianity, is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher and thinker, appears as a technique of survival for the oppressed." That it became, through the intervening years, a religion of the powerful and the dominant, used sometimes as an instrument of oppression, must not tempt us into believing that it was thus in the mind and life of Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Thurman was making the point that evil done in the name of Christ was not a basic weakness in the religion itself, but a betrayal of the genius of that religion. Philippians two five to eleven urges us to to, to uh, urges us to focus on making the story of Jesus seen and heard from our lives and communities. And it urges us to start with the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, where we find one who used his divine power and wisdom to dignify the status of women to exalt the position of children to a much higher status than they normally enjoyed in the society of his day, to treat Samaritans who were ancient antagonists of the Jews as persons worthy of respect, to personally deal with the sick and even touch the ones who suffered from the most loathsome diseases, and to honor the humble people of his society above the high and mighty. In other words... If records of the life of Jesus Christ are to mean anything in the definition of Christianity, that definition begins with remarkable solicitude for the weak, the despised, the oppressed, the other. Have the same mind as Christ Jesus. It's a powerful story, it's a powerful life, it's to be proclaimed from people who embody that message finally imitate Jesus by boldly living his story in Caesar's colony the poem the the hymn reaches a climax with the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth and we need to remember that Paul wrote this letter from a prison. And the Christians to whom he was writing lived in Philippi, which was a Roman colony, the the inhabitants of which were counted as citizens of Rome. So this message would have had counter-cultural, religious, and political implications because if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Living under the Lordship of Jesus has always been a radical and subversive way to live. But it should never be a triumphalist way to live. Boldness should never be confused with arrogance. If we go to the next slide, I'm very fond of Abraham Kuyper. He was a Dutch Calvinist, politician, politician, writer, thinker, remarkable man. And this is probably his best-known quotation, the best-known quotation from Kuyper. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What a great quotation. One historian said that Kuiper's words give us a dramatic picture of Christ Transfigured in glory, hand outstretched, finger extended in commanding power, standing over halls of Congress, the White House, the United Nations, the state legislator, the local school board, the tax assessor's office, and the weary citizen sitting at home reading a front page of the local newspaper and declaring with full yet winsome authority, this too is mine. Kuiper's words are indeed full of confidence and truth but we need to be careful because true as they are they're not the full picture and that full picture is provided with the whole of the christ hymn in verses 6 to 11 one of kuyper's commentators on his works puts it like this the jesus who points us to all that territory that he claims as his own is a saviour whose footprints are spattered blood. And the hand that points is marked with a wound. To follow this Jesus is to remember the road to Calvary that the Lord Jesus took to win his place of command. We have no business shouting, Jesus is mine with any kind of arrogance. That sort of tendency can easily blind us to the need to go out and suffer in those many broken regions of creation where the homeless set up their crude sleeping shelters, where people grieve and where the abused and the abandoned cry out in despair. Jesus calls us to join him there for those square inches and those who inhabit them belong to him too. The expansion of the church over the first 300 centuries of its existence has puzzled historians and theologians because there's no evidence of any kind of missionary strategy. People who work in the mission world or people who work in the leadership of churches like the Church of England spend a lot of time thinking about strategy. How are we going to win these people back? how are we going to plan our evangelism over the next 10 years and people get paid to come up with big strategies. Actually, when you look at the first 300 years, there wasn't any strategy. Well, there didn't seem to be anyway. One writer, Alan Crider, historian, he talks about the improbable rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he says it was due to the attractive power of communities of disciples whose individual and corporate lives embodied the values taught by Jesus and demonstrated by his life and death. Despite persecution in those early years, the church grew because, he says, the faith of these fishers and hunters was attractive to people who had become dissatisfied with the old cultural and religious habits. And they were drawn by lives which appeared to be beautiful and grace-filled. Hmm. There's a strategy. Justin Martyr said, Christian testimony depended upon the integrity of believers' lifestyle. Bishop Cyprian insisted that Christians should imitate Jesus' way of life and constantly remember that the claim to live in him had to be validated by walking as he walked or as our text today puts it have the same mindset as christ jesus one final word this call to be shaped by the gospel to imitate christ it's impossible in our own strength it's not something we can do by our own determination on its own Verse 5 is a notoriously difficult verse to translate. The Greek is tricky. One one paraphrase of it uh, goes like this on the slide. Adopt then this frame of mind in your community, which indeed is proper for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's, there's the hint to the power, to where the source of power lies for living this kind of life in Christ Jesus. The source of power by which we can follow and imitate the Lord Jesus is found in Christ Jesus. It is made possible by the power of the living Lord Jesus who is present and at work in the lives of his people through the work of his Holy Spirit. As verse 13 in our passage says it, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And a final word which is a poem so from a first century christ hymn poem here's a 20th a 20th century poem by a poet called lucy shaw her poem is called he who would be great among you you whose birth broke all the social and biological rules son of the poor who accepted the worship due a king. Child protégé debating with the temple PhDs. You were the kind who used a new math to multiply bread, fish, faith. You practiced a radical sociology, rehabilitated con men and call girls. You valued women and other minority groups. A GP, you specialized in heart transplants. Creator, healer, shepherd, innovator, storyteller, weathermaker, botanist, alchemist, exorcist, iconoclast, Seeker, seer, motive, sifter, you were always beyond above us, ahead of your time and ours, and we would be like you, bold as Bowen urges, we hear ourselves demand, admit us to your avant-garde, grant us degree in all the liberal arts of heaven. Why are belligerents? Why does this whiff of fame? and greatness smell so sweet? Why must we compete to be first? Have we forgotten how you took simply cool water and a towel for our feet? Have this mind within you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen.